0: Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There's a person from our church who has some rare illness and a life-threatening illness and uh, he um, traveled to the DC area he moved away but he traveled back with his family for a surgery up at uh, Johns Hopkins and they had assembled a team of, of surgeons for this very unusual surgery and these team of surgeons had come from around the uh, country for this procedure uh, tremendously expensive just for him to bring his family out here and everything and they get ready for the the operation and they do a, uh, a blood test on him and it turns out that he has uh, a flu virus that he hadn't experienced it. he didn't know he was sick and so they they scrap the surgery and say we can't can't take the risk we don't know how to affect the blood clotting and all that and the doctors go back and scatter back around the country again and it's unclear if they'll ever be able to assemble for this kind of surgery again um, some of them are moving on some of them are retiring and it was just a, a unique opportunity that is now gone it seems and you know it feels like they wasted their time and traveling out here and and you know getting all set up for the the surgery and you can see why it would be a temptation to worry or a temptation to doubt that god is in control or a temptation to doubt that god is is good and let me just stipulate for the sake of this illustration that worry is a sin right worry is a sin amen you know why worry is a sin because jesus says not to do it that's why and That should be good enough for you. In this kind of situation, you think, is the Lord sovereign over the flu virus? Is the Lord sovereign over these doctors and their schedules? And the answer is, of course, yes. Well, then how come the Lord is putting me in a situation where I have to worry? How come the Lord is putting me in a situation where I have to doubt his goodness? I mean, is the Lord wanting me to sin? That's what it seems like. And that's what James through 15 is written to address. In order for you to get your mind around this idea that God sometimes puts you in a situation where you feel like you have to sin, you have to distinguish in your mind between trials and temptations. Trials and temptations are not the same thing, although in Greek they are the same word, and that makes this really confusing. Fortunately, we're reading from the English this morning, so we've got that on our side. But the word up in verse two, count all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's related to the word in verse three, the testing of your faith. It's related to, it's the same word back in verse 12. Blessed is the person who remains steadfast under trial. And again, because when he has withstood the test, and we looked at that last week and we established that God is clearly at work through your trials. He's testing your faith to reveal the the purity of your faith and to cause you to grow in godliness. That's what God's doing through trials. But do trials always turn out that way or do sometimes they turn out with you not growing in godliness and instead you sinning? Do trials provoke sin? And it seems like the answer is obviously yes. Trials do at the very least give new opportunities to sin that weren't there yesterday. And so is it fair to say that God is putting you into a situation where you should sin? That you're tempted to sin because of what God is doing? Would you ever say it this way, that God is making me sin? And I I think that we're all too sophisticated to say that. None of us, I I think, would would say, I'm doing this because Jesus is making me sin. (laughs) We've come up with more nuanced ways of saying it. But underneath our expressions is really the same sentiment that James addresses here. Uh, the point is this, that God would never put you in a situation where sinning is the right thing to do. And if it sounds far-fetched, I mean, just marvel at how many things are in our culture that just embrace that sometimes God wants you to sin. You think of the person in, a, in an unhappy marriage. And it seems like the, the spouse is manipulative, prodigal, angry intentionally making the marriage as, as appalling and as awful as it can possibly be. And so finally the spouse says, that's it, I'm done. I want out. It's not a biblical divorce, but you know what? I've reached my limits. I can't endure this any longer. God would not want me to be in this situation, right? That's what they say. God would not want me to be in this situation. Therefore, I should get out. Well, is that Exit? Sin, is it according to God's word? It is sin because it's not according to God's word. But God wouldn't want me to go through this. Sometimes it even gets smithed up a little bit. Jesus would want me to be happy. Think of the person who turns to drugs or alcohol or illicit things on the internet to cope with depression or to cope with disappointment in life or to just unwind. They would say, yeah drunkenness is sin or yeah these these drugs are are sinful yeah it's taking my mind and putting under control of something else or yes the things i'm looking at online are are feeding lusts in me but you know what You don't know how difficult my life is right now. You don't know the things I'm going through. God does and God knows how difficult my life is and so God knows that this helps and so God is okay with me doing this. Maybe they wouldn't say Jesus wants me to to get drunk or Jesus wants me to look at these things but they get around it by saying, oh, this is so difficult and Jesus would want me to feel like I feel on the other side of this sin. Therefore, it's okay for me to do this sin. Or the person who says, God made me with these attractions or these desires in my life so God would want me to act on it. It can't be sinful to act on the desires and, the, and the, the longing that God has placed in my heart, and so I can act on them because God is the one who made me this way. And if God didn't want me to act on it, he wouldn't have made me this way, and that's just another way of saying that Jesus wants me to sin. Notice that that's James' logic, specifically the kind of logic that James rebukes in verse 13. Let no one say when he is being tempted or tested to the point of sin, that it is God who is doing this, because God doesn't cause people to sin. And when you say it like Jesus wants me to sin, you see how silly it sounds. But when you dress it up with language like, Jesus wouldn't want me to go through what I'm going through, or Jesus wouldn't want me to deal with this, or Jesus wouldn't want me to live in this kind of situation, then you realize that that's actually what you're saying, that Jesus wants you to sin to get out of your current circumstances. You realize that this verse, verse 13, challenges the American dream. The American dream that you have the right to pursue happiness, however, you want to be happy. In fact, this verse challenges the very nature of the Declaration of Independence, honestly, <laughs> but I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> There's something more important than your God given right to happiness, and that's your God given duty to obedience. Let me give you three reasons for an outline that God doesn't want you to sin. Three reasons God does not want you to sin. The point of these three verses is to deal with the very obvious objection that's raised at the end of verse 12. If you've made it through James 1, 2 through 12, at the end of verse 12, you would think, I mean, some trials are just too hard, Lord. They're too hard. I know you're at work for my my good and your glory, but sometimes it just crosses a line. And it makes me do this. So God is making me sin. Three reasons that's not true. First, sin is against God's nature. And that's where James begins. Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. And that's in quotes. It's the person, it's the the fictional person James is inventing. He's gonna do that a few more times in the book. I'm being tempted by God. So James is creating somebody who says, I'm being tempted by God. And James is shouting at him, no, you're not. (laughs) Because, first reason, God is not tempted by evil. And therefore, he himself can tempt no one. So God's not tempted by evil, so he wouldn't tempt anybody else. And let me unpack this a little bit because it's a very complex theological statement. It seems just very simple. Jesus isn't tempted, so you wouldn't be tempted either. And let's just cut to the chase here. Holiness and sin are opposites. Holiness is the very nature of God. God. You understand that God's attributes are not component parts. You don't take different attributes of God and build them together like a, you know, a Lego creature and what you get is God when you add you know, righteousness and holiness and justice and mercy and love. Ah, God. All of God's attributes, attributes are unified. God is one being with, with one nature. He has unified attributes. But holiness is described in the Bible in a different way than his other attributes. Holiness, in, in a sense, is exalted because it's a description of, of all of God. Holiness is another way of saying separate, that God is not like us. The angels describe God as holy, holy, holy. It's the thrice-proclaimed attribute of God. He's perfectly, infinitely, uh, repeatedly holy. God's not described as sovereign, sovereign, sovereign. (laughs) The angels don't declare, God, you are love, 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 but they do declare, God, you are holy, holy, holy. You are not like us. You're separate. You're exalted. You're above us. In light of that, sin is anything against God's nature. Because God is exalted and God defines righteousness by his very existence, sin is anything that is against his nature. Sin is an attack on who he is. Sin is a deviation from who he is. In a sense, sin is anything that doesn't conform to all of the attributes and glory and nature of God. Therefore, it is impossible for God to sin or even be tempted by sin because that would be against his nature. Temptation is to get, t- tempting God would require God to do something that is outside of his nature. And a person can't do something that is outside of their nature. Dogs bark, cats meow, birds fly, don't mix up that order, okay? Okay. <laughs> You act according to your nature. God can only act according to his nature, and God's nature is holy. Leviticus 19, verse two. Be holy, for I am holy, the scripture says. It's repeated in the New Testament. You are called to be holy because God is holy and you want to be like God. And it's, it's more than just the idea that because God doesn't have sin in him, he can't be tempted to do sin. It's actually a, more of a philosophical argument. If anything God does is by definition holy, then it is just categorically impossible for him to sin. Because whatever God does is righteous, by definition. God is the standard for sin or for righteousness. If God does something, it is by definition righteous. Something is sin because it doesn't conform to God. Don't picture the Ten Commandments as being outside of God and God looking at them and saying, OK, I'm going to do them. And God does them perfectly, and that means God is holy. It's the other way around. The commandments come from God's heart. They reflect who he is. So God is not holy because he keeps the law outside of himself. The law is holy because it comes from God's nature inside of himself. That's why God can't sin. And that's why it'd be ridiculous to tempt him to sin because there's nothing outside of himself that he needs. And because God can't be tempted by sin, why would he tempt anyone else to sin? What would God gain from you sinning? Now, God tests you, of course, and he tests you to reveal the authenticity of your faith, not to himself, because he knows, right? (laughs) It's not like God has to grade your test to find out how smart you are. (laughs) He tests you to reveal to you. Think of Abraham. This word, by the way, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament is the word that's used to describe for testing and, and trials what God does to Abraham when he tells him to sacrifice Isaac. He's testing Abraham. He's not testing Abraham to reveal to God if Abraham's faith is authentic. He's testing Abraham to reveal to Abraham and to Isaac the authenticity of Abraham's faith. God would not gain anything if Abraham were to actually sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham knows that. Abraham even declares on his way up to the mountain, he declares to his servants, we'll be back. (laughs) Don't you worry, we'll be back. Paul lets you know in the New Testament that Abraham declared that because he was just assuming God would raise him from the dead if he did die. So Abraham is operating in faith here, knowing that God is not going to compel him to sin. And of course, as you read the story, Abraham didn't know the details, but he was basically right. God does stop the knife and God does keep him from sinning because God God does not gain anything from sin. God is not served through sin. He's not pleased with sin. He would never lead somebody to sin because he doesn't get anything from that. God gets glory and worship through obedience. If violation, if a sin is a violation of God's holiness, and holiness is God's nature, and God created the universe so that you can glorify him by coming into conformity with his nature, then of course he would never want anyone to sin. Put it this way: a man guards the honor of his wife, because in a sense it is also his honor. Thus, no honorable husband would delight in his wife doing something shameful or foolish or sinful because a husband recognizes if my wife acts in a shameful or foolish or sinful way it besmirches the integrity and the character of our whole family not just her we sometimes think that the church is the bride of christ and yet it's okay for us to sin because that wouldn't bring shame to jesus after all it's just me doing it not jesus doing it but recognize that we're all in this together <laughs> That if we sin, we in a a very real way unite the body of Christ with a, a harlot, a prostitute, and bring shame on the cross, bring shame on Christ. And so obviously Jesus would never tempt someone to sin. God would never desire someone to sin, especially a believer, because it would bring his own honor into question. Now we sometimes smith it up even better than that, and we say, all right, God wouldn't want me to sin, but here's the situation I'm in. On the other side of the situation is you know, good, I can love God and I can be a pleasant person and all this. Here's the trial in the way, so I just gotta get over there. And the shortest line is sin. So God might not want me to sin, but by sinning, I get to a place where I can worship God and love God better. Do you follow that excuse? I know you're way too sophisticated to actually do this in your own life, but you'd be amazed the kind of things people think. So you think, okay, Jesus might not want me to sin, but if I do sin in this way, I'll just be happier and that'll allow me to serve Jesus better in the future. So sin makes it all worthwhile. If you think that, you forget Habakkuk 1 through verse 13, where Habakkuk writes, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor, describing God. God would never excuse your sin just because of where it gets you. There's no shortcuts from Egypt to Canaan, in other words. <laughs> Sometimes there's a 40 year wandering in the way, but God is at work through it. He would never approve of your sin because it would save him time. God never approves of evil, and He never wants you to sin. Listen, sinning is never the right answer to any situation you're in. An unbiblical divorce is never the right answer. Stealing is never the right answer. Boasting is never the right answer. Lying is never the right answer. In every moment of temptation, God always provides a way of escape so that you can honor him. And that way of escape is never sin. In fact, the way of escape is an escape from sin. It's not through sin. I mean, isn't that the point? That in every temptation, God provides you a way of escape. What are you escaping from? Sin. You're not escaping from the trial because God is the one using the trial for your good and his glory. So, God would never want you to sin, because sin is against his nature. Secondly, sin is in accordance with your nature. While sin is against God's nature, it is according to your nature. Your nature is fallen, and this is the point of verse 14. Each person is tempted, and that's that word again, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This word for lure and entice, they're fishing and then hunting terms. Luring is what you put on the end of a a hook. That's how Even the Romans fish that way. Everybody's fished that way. (laughs) There's this concept. You bait the hook, and the fish, that should know better. I mean, it's stuck to a hook, but fish aren't that smart, Okay, (laughs) They see the hook, and they're like, ouch, but look at that that worm. So good. (laughs) And they bite it, or you're enticed. You know, the raccoon sees the food inside the cage, and it's like, hmm, I've seen other raccoons caught in such a cage, but that food looks so good. That's these words here, that you're lured and enticed. Now, what is luring you and enticing you? Is it the trial? And the answer is no. The trial is not luring you or enticing you. What's luring you and enticing you is from inside of you. The trial is from God, who is obviously outside of you. The trial itself is outside of you. But the temptation is from inside of you. What are you tempted for? Well, you're tempted to... Meets your desires, to feed your lusts. And listen, your desires are always hungry. Your desires are always on the prowl. They're always hunting to be fed. Your desires want to, want nourishment. They want to be strengthened. And when they look for nourishment outside of Christ, that's where temptation comes into. God made us with desires, that is true. God made us for the desire for, for intimacy and for food and for sleep and uh, for, for accomplishment and success and to subdue the earth and to multiply and, and to have a family. Those are all desires God places in us. Those are good desires. But when they are, seek fulfillment outside of God's word, they become lusts. And it, again, it's the same word in Greek. The word for desire and lust, it's the same word. epithemia. is just a strong desire. But it's a sinful desire when it's being fulfilled outside of God's will. Just like a trial is in accordance with God's will, a temptation is outside of God's will. A desire is in accordance with God's will. And a lust is outside of God's will. I think it's a helpful category distinction. And that's why most translations give it to you in verse 14. You're lured and enticed by your own desire or or lust. It's luring you away. This is what's meant by the idea that covetousness and pride and lust and greed and envy are all the same sin. They're all idolatry. Because you're trying to fill your desires with something that's apart from Christ. You're worshiping what you're after. You know, the person who is proud and arrogant, they might not have a little Baal statue on their mantel place at home. They just worship their mirror instead, (laughs) they're their own God they boast about themselves and everybody should bow to them or at least recognize how good they are and why can't they just defer to me and this world would be so good if everybody just honored me as the intelligent brilliant leader that I am he's worshiping himself the person who's falling into to sexual sin is worshiping his own feelings his own sensations he's made an idol out of them and he's pursuing them the person who's materialistic is actually an idolater as well they worship comfort and they worship possessions and so on our hearts long to be satisfied and our lusts long to be fed and our worship longs to be meaningful and all those things can be fulfilled in christ in a godly way but when they look for fulfillment outside of christ they become desires that begin to entice you and lure you away that's the danger in temptation So you're going through a trial. And you say, God is working for my good and his glory. But you know what? I'm upset that I'm not in control of this. I had a plan for how this was supposed to go. I had this charted out. I had this figured out. (laughs) And now it looks like the plan is deviating. And that's causing me to worry. That's causing me to sin. Well, pause. What's actually causing you to worry and to sin? Is it the circumstance you're in? No. It's your desire to be in control. It's your desire to be in charge. It's your desire for you to be God that's causing you to sin. And that is obviously not from God. God did not put the desire in your heart for you to be God. Agreed? (laughs) That's you. You're making that. Your heart is the idol factory and it is working overtime and it's cranking them out. That's how cravings work was with a friend fishing down in Lake Anna, and he pulled out a carp that had two hooks in his mouth already. The one he caught him on was hook number three. I don't even know if that hook was baited, by the way, the one that they caught him on the third time. And you would think, man, don't you learn fish? Did you learn the first two times? And the answer is no, the fish didn't learn. He didn't look remorseful either, he was just looking. I mean, that's us, isn't it? how many times do you bite the same hook from your desires before you realize ouch maybe next time i won't bite but you do and what teaches you is verse 14 it should teach you to recognize that behind your lustful desire is enmity is death is danger the materialistic person thinks man if i have enough money i'll be comfortable the arrogant person thinks if i have enough power then I'll be comfortable. But instead, the pursuit of power and the pursuit of material things dethrones God and represents a bowing of the knee to the idol made by your heart. And at the end of all of that, so you're serving your own idols that you made rather than bowing the knee to God, you're serving your own idols that you made and at the end of all of it, you say, God, you made me do this. God, you put me in this situation. You made me sin. You wanted me to do this. No, he didn't. In fact, he warns you against it repeatedly. This is the same kind of logic that Adam had, isn't it? God, it's the woman that you gave me that did this. You're responsible for this. And no, it's not true. Adam sins because of the devil, firstly, was the the immediate cause but because of the desires in his own heart i mean the devil didn't physically make adam eat the fruit he didn't physically make eve eat the fruit adam had the desire to abdicate leadership adam had the desire to be the one in charge to be the one that decides the difference between good and evil satan knew that temptation so satan baited that hook and adam bit It's worth asking yourself what hooks are you nibbling on what hooks appeal to you the same hooks don't appeal to everybody we don't all struggle with the same categories of sin so don't be too self-righteous when you see somebody else falling into a certain kind of sin that doesn't tempt you like oh i would never do that as you go off on your proud arrogant way (laughs) god doesn't make you sin you make yourself sin Sometimes the devil does it, but he does it according to your desires. <laughs> you know, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Again, don't mix up the order there. Don't say the devil led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> because God doesn't tempt anyone. And Jesus, of course, went to the wilderness. He was I determined in my mind let's not talk about Jesus being tempted because it's too much of a tangent but look there it happens you know was Jesus tempted well in a sense he was tempted in every category of sin much like we are but because of his sinless nature the temptations didn't activate they didn't lure him into sin was it possible for Jesus to sin well I mean, yes and no. It depends on all what you mean by that. Jesus was sinless by definition. There's no desire in him for anything other than a wanton conformity to God's law. We read that in John 5. Nevertheless, the temptations were real in the sense that they were external to him. For us, the temptations are manufactured by inside of us. Here's a simpler way to say it. Jesus required the devil to tempt him. You don't require the devil to tempt you. (laughs) You produce it on your own. To battle that temptation find your significance in being happy in christ rather than on being happy in the world third god doesn't want you to sin because sin is against god's nature second because it's according to your nature thirdly because sin is anticipating death's nature sin is anticipating death's nature even accelerating death's nature this is verse 15. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. That word desire, again, it's word for lust, Epithemia, that the thing inside of you, when it's conceived, it produces sin. I recently showed Deidre uh, a picture, uh, my dad's wedding picture, actually, um, and uh, I didn't tell her what it was. And it was a, my dad's second marriage, and so I was actually in the picture down at my, my dad's waist looking cute as a button, I think, and uh, Deidre sees this picture. She doesn't know what it is, and she sees the bride in white and sees my dad and looks at him and says, she recognizes the bride as as my stepmom, and she looks at the the groom and says, wow, you're so much taller than your stepmom than I remembered. (laughs) Wait a minute. No, I'm the cute kid. (laughs) She thought I was my dad. This was yesterday. <laughs> she thought I was my dad in the picture. <laughs> got to be kidding me. <laughs> I mentioned this last Sunday night when we drove away from me, after Deidre met my dad for the first time. We get in the car and Deidre tells me right away. First thing she says is, well, I've got no excuses anymore. I know exactly what you're going to look like in 20 years. <laughs> Which makes sense, you all look like your parents. When you sin, what is it going to grow into? What is sin going to look like when it grows up? Is it going to look like God? Of course not. It's going to look like death. And you cannot possibly be surprised that it happens that way. The point is that a person who falls into sin. It's the result of a process. That process begins in the mind, and then the lust, uh, you have this desire for something, you want to be in control, or you want a sensation, or you want comfort, or you want whatever, you want happiness, you have something that you want in your heart. You're not having it fulfilled in Christ, and so you're looking for it outside of Christ. You know the channels God has given you to fulfill it, but God doesn't seem to be activating those channels, or God doesn't seem to be, be using the channels you think he should be using, and so you look outside of God's will to have those desires fulfilled, that it's scratched, so to speak. And as you are looking outside of God's will, you see this this lust is growing inside of you, and it's growing and it's growing, and you keep feeding it by thinking about it and by harboring in your heart and thinking, I deserve this, or I should experience that, or I get this. And eventually that desire will produce sin. It doesn't happen out of the blue. When a person falls into sin, they never fall very far, right? (laughs) It wasn't a far fall. They act all surprised. Oh, they didn't see that coming, are you joking? Of course they saw it coming. They're feeding that desire. So you have the desire and you set your eyes on it and you feed it and that desire then mates with your action and it conceives sin. And you can't be surprised. You can't be surprised. People act. like, oh, I fell in sin, it was just out of the blue. No, it wasn't. It's like when a couple tells you, oh, yeah, we got pregnant. Totally unexpected. <laughs> Who did your premarital counseling? <laughs> Come on. I fell into sin. I didn't mean to. Well, you were feeding the desire. And then what happens when sin gives birth? What does it produce? Well, it produces death. Sin. And death are descended from each other. Lust produces sin. Sin produces death. They all look like each other. It's not from God. God is the one that forbid Adam and Eve from eating the fruit. It's not the one that fed them the fruit. And so when they ate, they were, of course, immediately ashamed. Their nakedness was exposed. They hid from God. They didn't run to God. They hid from God because they weren't being conformed to his image. Sin is always in the nature of death. No one can be surprised when it happens. So to make this practical then, bottom line, you have to learn to distinguish between temptation and trials. You have to cultivate the ability in your mind to distinguish between temptation and trials. I'm skipping a whole bunch of my notes so you can go to the next slide. (laughs) You have to distinguish between temptation and trials. The difference is the purpose, and the purpose helps you find the object that you're supposed to reckon with. Trials cause you to grow into the image of God. Temptations cause you to grow into sin. Trials refine you and make you more like Christ. Temptation erodes you and debases the human nature. Trials produce spiritual maturity. Temptation produces and reveals spiritual immaturity. So it becomes very important when you're working through a practical situation or a practical trial in your life for you to distinguish the difference between trials and temptations. For you to distinguish the difference between means and ends. The means is the vehicle in which God is using to produce the end. Trials are the means, the vehicle, to spiritual growth and maturity. And in fact, in verse 12, they're the means to spiritual life. Obviously, verse 12 and verse uh, 15 are opposites of each other. Verse 12 says that trials produce the crown of life. Verse 15 says that temptation brings forth death. And so you begin to think In a binary fashion, you view the world that way. Is this producing life in me? Then it is from God. Is this producing obedience in me? Then it is from God. Is this refining me? Then it is from God. Is it making me mature in Christ? Then it is from God. Is this making me sin? Then that's from me and not from God. Notice the total difference in these two. Trials are outside of you. Temptations are inside of you. It's not the same object. They don't have the same means. They're not the same ends. One life, the other death. Trials are brought to you by the Lord for you to peel back your desires, waste them away, and so you're left with a heart for the Lord. You know, in 2 Kings 22 and 23, Josiah, when he is converted to Yahweh, he takes all the idols that the Israelites have been worshiping, and he breaks them down, burns them, makes ashes out of them, and spreads them on the ground to defile the ground where they used to be. That's what trials do for you in your life. They expose the things that you're seeking comfort in, that you're seeking confidence in, and they just break them down, turn them into ashes and spread them around on the ground so you're never tempted to trust those things again. That's what trials do. Whereas temptation just erects new altars, new idols. And you have to distinguish between the two. So go back to the the person who is ready for surgery and gets sick and so can't do the surgery and and it seems like they wasted all this and you ask yourself, is God at work in this? Well, yes, yes if you receive that as god causing you to grow and to to peel back your comfort in life and to peel back the desire that you're in charge and you're in control then yes god is using it to refine you and cause you to be spiritually mature and if you receive this as oh no god is making me worry and god is making me doubt him well no that's not from god because god's not making you do those things notice the subtlety of this when you begin to worry and doubt the object that we're talking about has shifted from the sickness you had to your own desire to have your plan go your way? Or the person in the unhappy marriage? Is this from the Lord? Well, is it sanctifying you? Then yes. But if you say, no, I'm done. I'm out. Well, is that from the Lord? Well, notice what's shifted here. Now we're not talking about your marriage. Now we're talking about your desire to escape that, your desire for, for comfort, really. I don't mean to be so just flippant with it if i had more time i'd be more nuanced with it but I mean, that's the bottom line if you receive it as a temptation to worry and you think god must want me to worry and complain because he brought this situation then no you're wrong that's not from the lord if you receive it as a temptation to be in control and that provokes worry in you then you're wrong you're not in control and god's using to expose that to you so what's the easiest way to distinguish between trials and temptations Let me tell you an unhelpful question. An unhelpful question is, does this cause me to suffer? Not a good question. Because do trials cause you to suffer? Yes. (laughs) Do temptations cause you to suffer? Obviously, does the hook hurt? Of course it does. Here's a better question. Is God at work? Is this sanctifying me? Then that is a trial. Is this causing me to sin? then that is a temptation. And that's not from the Lord. So what do you do when you found yourself in a temptation? You have to rightly identify what the temptation is. The temptation is not your circumstance. That's not the temptation. The temptation is what you want inside of you. And you cannot rightly fight temptation until you rightly identify it. You know, we have a mantra in our house. I will not self-diagnose on WebMD. I will not self-diagnose on WebMD. I will not self-diagnose. Repeat it three times. It works wonders. This should be your own mantra. I will not fight temptation without first asking why I'm tempted. I will not fight temptation without first asking why I'm tempted. Get to the heart reason. A person who's tempted for an unbiblical divorce, I can almost guarantee the spouse's conduct is not the heart issue. A person who's wasteful with money, listen, budgeting is not the heart issue. I can teach you how to budget, I can give you envelopes, but that's not the issue. The issue is your own covetousness. The person who's proud and arrogant, their own intelligence is not the issue. The person ensnared in lust, I can almost guarantee that lust is not the heart issue. There's some other sense of entitlement, some other thing they feel they're owed or they deserve, and that's where you start to get to the heart issue. You begin to peel it back. You ask yourself, why do I spend money like this? Why do I want my life to go this way? Why do I want this sickness to be gone? Why, why, why? Those questions reveal the heart. Why do I feel like the Lord owes me a spouse? Why do I feel like the Lord owes me a better job? Why do I feel like the Lord owes me happier circumstances? And when you start asking those questions, you're on the road to realizing that your trials and your temptations were likely misdiagnosed by you to begin with. Ask yourself this, what are you after in life? I'll promise you this what you're after in life will be one of the benefits that you find being in Christ when you seek it outside of Christ you will be tempted to sin but when you submit it to Christ you find that he offers it to you freely in him Lord we're thankful that well time has gotten away from us this morning <laughs> it hasn't gotten away from you <laughs> We're thankful that you are in charge of our lives and of our world, that you sanctify us according to your will. So Lord, give us the grace to submit ourselves to your will. We pray that you would be at work. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington DC area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now, may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.